Well, I got a little something here to share. And it was something I, I uh, started thinking about a few weeks ago. Shared a little bit on Tuesday night about three weeks ago. When we were talking about said, if you remember, you know, that attachment as community and how strong it, it can be and should be and how that gives us a place to grow in, in our discipleship, to grow in our fellowship. Um, one of the things that struck me as I was reading about it, thinking about it, thinking about us, is just how important love is. Uh, and that's an understatement, of course. You know, God is love, and it's good to know that. Uh, therefore, love's got to be a pretty big deal. And then Paul goes on and talks about uh, all throughout First Corinthians 13, the details about love, but then he, he says in the end, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is just, just an enormous big deal. And some events came up uh, this week that I'm going to allude to but I'm not going to join. <laughs> uh, really, I don't want to. I, I don't want to join the discussion per se. But I want to talk about about love, and it was reminded of me, and it had to do with that Super Bowl ad about the foot washing, and the nature of all the comments going back and forth among uh, believers, mostly some some people who aren't believers made comments, but uh, and um, so, like I say, I'm really not not too interested in, in uh, taking sides or suggesting edits or anything along those lines. But I do want to talk about the idea of love in the middle of it. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul holds up love in the sunlight and he spins it around. I have this uh, big diamond thing, crystal diamond, that I was going to try to bring, but I've been doing so many weird things in my office that I couldn't find it. So envision a diamond about that big cut out of crystal. And just have one of these lights shining on it. And what I see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is just taking love, this one entity, but he's beginning to hold it in the light and, and say, look at this, and then he'll move it, and another facet of it will reflect and, and tip it up, and another facet will, and then some light will shine through it. And that's what I think he's doing in 1 Corinthians 13 with his details of love. And then another place that love is really, really prominent as a central theme, is in 1 John chapter 4 in a couple of spots, 7 through 8 and 16 on. And John inseparably links love to the most fundamental and necessary thing that the Scriptures reveal, period. It is the essence of the gospel, and that is our being born of God. Love is the point of that. And we'll see that in just a second. And the point of knowing God. And then in John 16, that disciple, remember John called himself the disciple who Jesus loved? I wish we could all do that. I wish we would all do that. Because we can all do it. Uh, that this love comes from God and in fact is God himself. And I discovered something when I was digging around in it a little bit that got me excited and I'm going to share it and, and hopefully it'll mean something to you. But it, it really is just a manifestation of God in us. And so your testimony about being interrupted in the middle of a thought that you had a thousand reasons to have through history, right? Well, that isn't something that happens from a distance. That happens from in here. The conversion in your thinking, what happened... What happened with you and your brother 
That literally isn't something that comes from outside of us. Now, I'm not saying it can't. I'm not saying God can't, you know, check Dave. You're sitting there in your chair. All of a sudden, being engaged, uh, you said you felt like you were inflating? Expanding. You know, were you being pulled bigger or were you being filled bigger? Coming from within. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is really real. I mean, I think, I think love is really real. Now, it sounds stupid to say that because everybody knows love is really real, but I don't think everybody does know love is really real. I think they think love is like other nice things. That it's partly luck or it's, it's partly habit, or it's partly being, you know, I think it's more than that, and that's what I believe is, is on here. So let's take a, a look. Now, this is a really weird title on the slide, but at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, after he talked about all the gifts and all that kind of stuff, and I will show you a still more excellent way. I did a study one time about those words, and it was pretty exciting to me because the word... Um, a more excellent way. That word excellent is hooperballo, and it means to throw. And the image is like a javelin thrower in the Olympics. And Paul is saying that, and, and then the way is like a road or a path. And so what Paul was saying is, I'm going to show you the way that sails beyond anything else you've ever seen. In the whole competition of life, when, when the javelin was thrown, I'm going to show you the one thing that will go further than it's ever happened. And, and, and that could apply to any kind of sporting event, but that's actually the word picture that hooperball means to throw further than the competition, to throw further than anything else. So Paul is, is talking, obviously, about gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then we can, we'll see in just a minute that 1 Corinthians 13 is bracketed on the other side by saying, hey, these gifts are going to fail, but love will never fail. It's the way. It's the path. It's the road. It's how we get from here to there. It's how we bring to earth that which is already being given, but it's coming out of us. It's coming out of the decision you made, your ability to listen, your ability to expand, your ability to have mercy. So here it is. Starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Now, all of us have read that, but I would be willing to, 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 to say that I believe we don't, we probably have not slowed down and taken a look at these particulars and ask ourselves even, why? Why did Paul write this? Why did he feel compelled with, with something that is as commonly understood as love to break it down into all these little pieces? And especially when you think that he did it in a language that already had three other specific words so you knew for sure you were talking about a particular kind of love. Unlike English, where we love football, we love people, we love uh, Nutella. What is it? Pizza, yeah. Yeah, that kind of pizza that you put 
pineapple on. It's not really pizza. It's something else. Anyway, Paul was in a, speaking in a language and, and communicating in a language that had very nuanced things about love. Uh, eros is sexual type love, that sort of love. Phileo is friendship type love. Storge is like a brotherly love. And so the, the categories of love that we throw around all over the place, there were Greek words for that. This word agape came in, and, uh, or agapeo, it came in and it, it was associated with the gods in Greek mythology. It was associated with kind of altruism and a bunch of other things. And so I feel like Paul realized that the love that I've seen my whole life, the love that I've experienced, the love that we've seen in, uh, in my religious life, these, these images, they don't do the job to reveal who God is and how God loves. And so he started breaking it down into these constituent components. And, and I think it's worth looking at. And then it goes on, and remember I said that, that he said, this more excellent way I'm going to show you is a more excellent way than just relying upon the gifts, just relying upon the power of God coming through your life or the things that build up people. And he was very positive forever, and even in the previous chapter, about these gifts. He said, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but, it, but even more that you would prophesy. And, you know, it, so it's not like we're, we're, he's saying, oh, these are bad, this is good. He's saying, this is good, and this is what the Hooper Ballow thing is about. That was a great throw. Next throw. Wow! That was Hooper Ballow. That's what this is about. There's nothing being slamming the gifts here. This is just how love is a complete, what would you call it? it it's like a, another factor, multiple factors above in its goodness. And, and of course, John is the one that helps us understand why that, of course, makes perfect sense, because God is love, right? So anyway, but if, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And so um, I just want to point out a couple things in this little chunk of Scripture. You see how Paul wrapped the argument in the gifts at first and their value, and then how love is more valuable than the gifts. Not to get you to not do gifts, but so you had some clue how much value to assign to love. More than you thought. More than the kind of love that, that was romantic love, because Eros didn't, didn't make that case for God. More than the love in a family or the love of friendship. As good as all those are, God's love takes us to a new place. New place. But then he goes down here, and here's a hint. Uh, when I, you know, and also, obviously, he was not trying to get us not to, to, to ignore what Jesus said about turning and becoming like little children. So he's not trying to do that. But what he is doing here, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, have you ever thought about how weird that comparison is? It doesn't make sense. If you see in a a mirror that's dimly or dirty, the thing you would contrast that with is seeing in a mirror that's clean. Right? 
But that's not what he's saying. He's saying the life that we live right now and the way we see things is like looking in a dim mirror. But the thing that love is bringing to us is like turning away from the mirror and seeing God face to face. And and then if you think about it that way, and then you let John make love as big as he does, then you can see how love is way beyond cleaning the mirror. It's way beyond looking at a distorted image and bringing it into focus. It's like, I don't even need a telescope. I can hug the star itself, or the planet, or whatever, you know? It's, it's that kind of throw beyond. And it's not just that. It's also, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. So this thing about love is deeply relational. And it's deeply engaging. It's face-to-face. It's known and being known. Okay? So that's, that's that. That's why I think he went to such trouble to break love down into all these facets so that we could begin to understand them and begin to believe them, begin to engage in them and recognize them while they're happening in our life. But now faith, hope, and love abide. These three things, but the greatest of these is love. And again, I think it's the wrong way to interpret it, and I don't know if any of you are doing it, but I know I did at some point in my life and I've heard other people do it and teach it. Uh, It's not a knock on faith. And it's not a knock on hope. It's just that love is incomparable. Love is incomparable. Now, not every kind of version of love is incomparable because there's a lot of love that's abusive. There's a lot of love that's manipulative. There's a lot of love that that uh, is painful. But it's still the greatest. Now, here's how John puts it all together. Oh, no, i got to go through a couple of these. Sorry. So this is like the world's longest PowerPoint slide. <laughs> love is patient. Um, we're not going to have time to dig into a lot of these, and the Greek words won't mean that much to me or anybody else, but... Uh, Macrothemeo means uh, long, enduring, long waiting, long patiently. And then themeo is, is literally anger or wrath. So patience means God is a long way away from ending up angry. It goes back a little bit to what uh, he said to, to Moses, you know. I'm long-suffering. That's what this is kind of a word from. Kind. This was an interesting one. Uh, the Greek word, Christian, oh my, I, I didn't understand it. It comes from a root word that means to be employed. And the best translation that I could see in, in some of the lexicons was to make yourself useful. Do something practical. Now, that was a big change for me because kindness for me was always just kind of respond gently, you know, or be be soft-spoken or something along those lines. But there really is an emphasis here, and we can dig into these later, and I think we probably should. But again, the fact that I've read this a million times, or at least 
couple thousand times, and um, and never really took the time to understand that these words had a, a, a root meaning, and that kindness was one of those that completely shifted my thought on what it meant. It's not just being tolerant or something, being gentle. It's being useful. And it made me think of uh, something that somebody said one time, what does love look like in Haiti after the storms? Well, it looks like clothes and food and shoes, and things like that because of all the broken glass. Kindness. The next one is not jealous, zello. It's like zealot. Remember that? It's, it, it's not having this outrageous passion that causes you to, to need it for yourself. Doesn't brag. Uh, you got a couple of these. There were just really good ones. Uh, N.T. Wright says, makes no fuss. And um, Francis de in the Mirror said, has no desire to make others feel inferior. I thought that was pretty intense translation. Because a lot of times bragging is that, right? It's trying to get a leg up in the conversation or in your own psyche, or your own hearing. So that's what that one means. Is not arrogant. Um, which one was that one? That was pretty cool. Um, oh, no need to sing your own praise. And of course, pride is a, is a good translation on some of those. Does not act unbecoming. Eskimeonoi. Uh, be unseemly, unloving. It's used twice. In secular usage, it had uh, it had to be becoming a violent aggressor, where foul language is at least suggested. So abusive in that situation. Does not seek its own. It's a negation of a word that means to look for your own best interest to be focused on your place in something or your part in something is not provoked nt wright translates that one doesn't rage and the mirror talks about uh, isn't spiteful and doesn't walk around with a lot of sharp edges that's kind of a good word picture you know does not take into an account wrong. Two words there. Uh, the, the idea of take into account is uh, logiomai, and kakos is an evil story is what kakos generally means. And logiomai is to keep a record of or to make a ledger, to write out the facts. And so what this is saying is that love doesn't write out the evil story about someone. That's, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Kerei is the word for rejoice. It's the same thing as charis, you know, the, the, the joy, the happiness, the spiritual gifts, all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't rejoice. And adika, if you remember when we studied that a little while ago, A is the negation, and dika is the word for justice. So you don't rejoice in an injustice. And aletheia is a truth, but the nature of aletheia truth is revealed. But you do celebrate it when truth is revealed. 
So you don't celebrate when there's an injustice, but you do celebrate. Now, this is an interesting factor in love because uh, like one of the things that, that stirred up so much controversy around that ad is some people interpreted it as okaying all kinds of things that could in fact be interpreted as injustice or unrighteousness. But love doesn't, doesn't keep a record of those things, first of all. And it doesn't require that you say, oh, unrighteousness is not unrighteousness. It just doesn't take it into account. It doesn't celebrate it. Next one. Oh, yeah, okay, so this next verse in verse 7, the word for all things is the word panta. And this is a fascinating word to dig into the Greek on because guess what it means? It means all things. It means everything of a group. (laughs) It's not complicated. It just simply means everything that you're you're thinking about. If you've got a group of things, panta is all those things. If you have a group of people, panta is all those people. So it's it's all things. Now, when you combine it with these next words, it makes you scratch your head a little bit when you think that love does this, but love bears all things, carries, endures, puts up with. And there's a sense of grace in that. Believes all things. It's just the fundamental word we use all the time for belief, pastuo. When you were led to say, I believe you, that was a manifestation of this exact facet of love. When that turned and caught the light for Anthony, you could see the result. Hope solved things. Alpizo, you know, the Bible in one place says you don't hope for what you already have, right? And so hope doesn't depend on the, on the person that you're loving to provide a basis. Hope is the substance of the thing, like faith is the substance of the thing you hope for. So you carry hope. One of the things that's like freaked me out is that people don't think about God being hope-filled as much as they should. But the, the Bible speaks of him specifically saying he is the God of hope. And so love hopes. And if you're believing all things and hoping all things, that is a pretty powerful combination for change to open a door for change, to be a factor for change. And I think love is like that. And then endures all things. Because if you're going to believe all things for somebody and you're going to hope all things, you're probably going to have to hang in there for a little while. (laughs) Because you're reaching into a realm that, let's say, they haven't reached into. You're reaching into an understanding that they don't have. You're reaching into a declaration that they haven't made. But hope and and belief take you to a place that has to be sustained by enduring. So that's, I think, why Paul thought that was worth mentioning. And then the last one's pretty fantastic. Love never fails. 
This word odepte, odepte, literally emphasizes never ever. No, not ever is a lot of the ways. No, not ever. Double negative kind of emphasis type thing. Never, ever, never. No, not ever. And then fails is an interesting, it's not really uh, the primary way the word's translated. The primary way that word is used all throughout Greek uh, secular literature and everything else is fall. It's like something that falls down, like a building falls down, or a bird falls out of the sky, or a leaf falls off a tree. So it means, um, Francis de Troyes translated it, love never loses its altitude. <laughs> it never, and, you, and, and some translations say never quit. I think that's a good, good thing. But it never loses its stature and its bearing. Love never ever, no not way, no way, comes crashing down. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. So why are these words important? I think because what agape love is describing is not just a behavior that you and I need to adopt to. It's describing what John talks about here. And so I think Paul, whether Paul knew that John was going to write this, and I don't know the relationship between when 1 Corinthians, that, that was written earlier than John's epistle, I think. But I don't even know if they conversed over it. I'm not even really sure what went on between them. But in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul understood that this love he was talking about couldn't be described just as family or just as, as friend or just as, as romantic relationship. And so he broke it into these facets. So here's John. He personifies love and then gives us really the only clue you need as, as to how to apply it. And that sounds almost stupid for me to say because I've just been making the case that love is like this huge, enormous thing. But, but here's, here's where, where it plays out. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not know God does not, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so let me remind you that this supreme sort of, this hooperballo throw about love is being driven even further with the revelation John is giving. It's not just a love that is beyond Eros or beyond Storge or beyond uh, Phileo. It is a love that is God himself. To know God is to know love. To not know love is to not know God. That's pretty serious. So beloved, let us love one another. That is the phrase he starts this revelation with. And so that's why I say it's not hard to figure out where love comes into play. It literally is in loving one another. Loving the people around us. Loving the people that make their way into your life. Loving the people that have been in your life for a long time. Loving the people who are exiting your life because of circumstances. Loving people. Again, some of the arguments that I heard, and I understood them totally, uh, of, of believers who were, let's say, resisting the, the or you know, not didn't like the, the Super Bowl ad about the foot washing, uh, 
They were just saying that, you know, well, Jesus only washed the disciples' feet, the ones that loved him and followed him. At the end, though, of washing the disciples' feet, he said, I, being your Lord and Master, have given you this example, so you go and do likewise. And you could interpret that, that they, the, the 11 of them, or however many, they were just supposed to wash one another's feet. But that probably isn't what it meant. And church history seems to indicate that foot washing extended beyond that as it goes on. And uh, I even heard, heard uh, one person point out that Jesus washed Judas's feet. And uh, the conclusion was not the one I would have assumed, but yes, Jesus did wash Judas' feet, <laughs> knowing and saying that not all of you are clean. Anyway, it starts with loving one another. Because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so, if we can't love, or if we choose not to love, we have a bigger problem than just not loving. We're doing that because there's something about God we don't know. Then the, in 4.16-21 says this, we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides or remains in love abides or remains in God, and God abides in him. That is a pretty incredible promise. Because, well, like so many of the testimonies that you guys shared reveal the reality of God being with us and in us. But a lot of people that, that love Jesus and are following him, for whatever reason, that isn't a real resonating truth to them. They're living for God. They, they see God blessing them from a distance. Rarely do I, do I hear people talking about God emerging out of them coming out of them. And when somebody tries to say something like that, people get all weird and like it's new age or something. But it seems to literally be, I mean, what does it mean if it doesn't say the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him? It's just echoing what Jesus said when he said, uh, I and the Father are going to make our abode in you. God's going to live here. We don't have to look. I mean, Jesus pops out of the wilderness and out of the temptation. And one of the first things he said is don't look over here or don't look over there. Don't say it's coming here or here. The kingdom of God is within you. And the kingdom of God doesn't have an existence apart from the king. He is in us. In that day, you'll know that I'm in my Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. That's all this is. That's all this is talking about. But this, this whole thing about love. And then in both these verses, the conclusion is that God is love. God is love. So to learn about love is to learn about God. To experience love is to experience God. To give love is to give God. To be touched by love is to be touched by God. And I don't know how to categorize it when somebody who obviously isn't conscious of God still loves. But I can't think of another source where they get it because it says right there that, that uh, we love because God loved us. So anyway, here's the rest of the, the section there. By this, love is perfected within us. Now that's an interesting thing. God is love. 
and the one that loves abides in God, but that needs to be perfected. There's a process involved in that. You go from point A to point B. You go from a certain degree to another degree. You go from a certain intimacy to another intimacy. I don't really know how to explain that because you'd think that wouldn't be the case. I mean, if you're full, you're full. Or if, you know, is there, are, are you a little bit pregnant? Or, or <laughs> but pregnancy is still a process, right? So, so life is a process. So that, anyway, that's part of it. By this love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. That statement's too amazing to make commentary about. But how important is it relative to judgment? And love is the factor for that. And how important is it to be like him in this world? Uh, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Your story, Jason, was a, a concrete example of that. You know, there was ample opportunity to go, oh, well, this could get ugly. But then in the moment, the moment that you agreed, the moment that you touched or were touched by love, the fear went away. Manifest. Similar in your situation a lot of the stories. I hope this is the same for you and your brother. Let yourself be touched by love in such a way that fear can't stay. And just, just even believe it. Hope it. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should also love his brother. I think this chunk of scripture explains why so much tension over the Super Bowl ad and the sides and the polarity. And, you know, we don't want to endorse sin, but my goodness, can you love without endorsing? Is it possible? Can God love the world without endorsing the fall? I, I think so. I think so. For God so loved the cosmos that included the people in it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You, love can precede change. Love can precede righteousness. Love can precede obedience. Love can precede transformation. Matter of fact, it seems to me we love because love preceded our ability to love. That's how we love. And that's how the people that need love are going to love too. Because they're going to be touched by the love before they can love. I don't, I don't understand all the details about it, but it's there. Uh, and this commandment we have, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Seems simple enough. Now, I discovered something. This is what I'm going to close with. And then I want to hear some of your thoughts. And we can go back to that page about the words if you want or whatever. In, in this little phrase, the love which God has for us is how it's translated in the New American Standard. And uh, I, don't, I can understand it, but... You guys know there's a couple things here that excite me, and one of them is uh, 1722 there. 
So here's, here's what this looks like in Greek. Uh, ten agapain hain ekie ho theos en hemin. And, and if you were to transliterate literally down what that means, that's what each of those words means. And you'll notice it doesn't, that's just the phrase, uh, uh, the love which God has for us. Okay, so the love is up there, ten agapain, pretty direct translation. Then the word hain uh, is it's like that or which or who, but it's a it's a it's pointing to, generally speaking, a, a person or a thing, okay. And there's not any so the love which is what they chose, which is okay. But then ekie is the word echo, and it literally means to hold physically. And you can metaphorically use it, but it means to hold. And, and what's weird to me is that that word is translated has in the past tense, creating a finished distance between, what, between God's love and you. No wonder we don't understand that this thing is applicable in the middle of a phone call or in a difficult circumstance or when a, when a loved one is behaving badly in the midst of it. it. It's not has. It's not like some sentiment that God has in his heart and he's holding off in heaven someplace. It literally means he's holding. He's holding in a relationship, in a possession, in an apprehension. He's got his arms around, his hands around. All right, so that's what... Okay. And then, ho theos. Ho is never translated, but that's why I capitalized God in there, because John is being really clear. We're not just talking about divine in, in general. We're not talking about a divine attribute. We're talking about the person of God. The God. The God. And then here's my favorite, and if you've been here for very long, you know it, that this is one of my pet peeve Greek words. The way it's translated, the love which God has for. What does that make you think about? Does it make you think about uh, inside, totally embraced, living in oneness and union, or is it? Does it allow for distance? It allows. It's like the love that your grandmother back in in uh, New York has for you, or it's like you know that kind of thing. For is just a freaking pathetic translation of the word in. Ain is in. I mean, and, and, and you can get to in twos or all this kind of stuff, but it's it fundamentally... I'll show you in a sec. And then he-men, or he-men, he-men, it has the two built into it. Okay, so here's, here's the definitions. So echo including the alternate scale, used in a certain tense only. It's a primary verb, and it means literally to hold, to get a hold of. Like, here, hold this book. Hold this Bible. 
Now, you're not doing it yet. Now, hold this Bible. Now you're doing it. That's the difference in that word. That's all it is. That's really what it means. So if we have any distance, if, if, it's, if it's before you've actually got it in your hands, that's not what that word means. The word means literally to have in your hold. Thank you. Aim. This is Strong's definition. A primary preposition denoting fixed position in place, time, or state. Meaning, in. <laughs> in. Jesus was in the temple. Now, look back up here, and let me show you something which is utterly inexplicable to me as to why we, tra- we, we tolerate this kind of translation. We have come to know and believe the love which God has, what it really should say is, in us, that God holds in us. He holds love in us, okay? Now, the reason that, that I'm being somewhat aggressive about saying it's not a good translation for is because Ain is also right here. God is love, and the one who abides for love, no, it's not for love, it's Ain in love. It's in the same sentence. The one who abides in love abides for God. No, he doesn't abide for God. You abide in God. There's a relationship there. It's the same word. Ain, ain, ain. Here it goes again. God abides for him, around him, with him. No, there are all other words that say that. Ain says in. And they've translated it that way. Why? Why? Well, It's because the idea that the love that we've come to know and believe is actually a love that God takes into us and hangs on to it and us and makes us one is beyond what most of us grew up believing was even possible. But it's possible. It's not only possible, it is the product of redemption. It's what it means to be saved. It is the nature of that born-again experience that he emphasized, love being the centerpiece of, born from above experience in in, in verse 7. And then this last one emphasizes what I just said, I think, to me. So, hemen is the dative case plural of New Testament 1473, which is the word ego, or ego, ego. Things pronounced ego. Ego means me, and hemen is the dative case plural, which means us. But it's directive in that case, so you have to put two in there. So to us. So the love which God has for to us is how that would be translated, but it doesn't make any sense because it's not for as a version of to or toward. It's in. So it's that God holds in you and me and the person that we are encountering. He, he possesses. He holds in his hand, in his heart, in his mind. He holds that inside of us. Inside of us. That's why that didn't come from the outside. 
That's why your correction didn't come from the outside. That's why your love for your brother didn't come from the outside. He holds that in us. And then it, it, the to us comes from that one word, Haman. So, I mean, so, it, it, you know, it could very easily say the love who God holds in us or the love which God holds in us. In us. For us. In the two part there. So, anyway, I thought it was cool. So, anyway, anything anybody wants to talk about before we go? We've got to get the worship team up here. I just wanted to sew this in. Obviously, I didn't go into great detail about it. Just meditate on these words. Just meditate on these words. Yeah, yeah. Loving me, anchors it, his love. Anchors his love in me. God holds his love in me. Yeah, God. yeah. I mean, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to push it too far, but he, there's something about, it's something that he holds in me. His love is anchored in me. There's a place deposited that's safe. Yeah, I would. You know, uh, that's an interesting thought. I would say, I wouldn't have trouble pondering that concept because when you said anchor i thought of two things i thought of a wall anchor you know how you drive it in and then it it keeps it falling out and then i thought about a boat anchor the purpose is to not let go right it's 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 to be rooted so yes i would say absolutely that would be closer than just four yeah yeah four is like a gift or an option but something yeah. that, that's inside, rooted, and, and, and fastened. Yes. It's a small word, but it's huge. Thank you. I love that concept. Yeah, that's great. No, that's a great comment. Anybody else? Yeah, come on up. I don't, you don't have my permission. I'll sit down. Uh, on our way here this evening, we stopped at Walmart. And as we were walking down the aisle, a couple was running behind us, yelling at us. And uh, we turned around, and it was um, a guy that led a singles group. And it's where Tim and I got to know each other 42 years ago. Oh, wow. And we stood there and shared back and forth. And he led a, um, a group, well, with his daughter, uh, who participated, but it was a, a horse kind of thing. And he was at one of the shows, and he was sitting on a platform, fell backwards like nine feet mm. on his head. And for, I mean, this guy is a really cool guy, really sweet, love the Lord. I mean, we got to know him, you know, through the singles group. And um, for... Uh, two years, his wife, you know, she had, I mean, she just loved him through it. She had had a falling out with the Lord, some things happened, and so she was just doing this on her own, you Mm -hmm. know, doing her own kind of thing, as the mirror would say, the DIY love kind of thing. And then finally one day, 
after about two years, she just went to the Lord. Now, she was not in a good place with the Lord, but went to the Lord and just said, I can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. A few days later, Chuck came back into his own and for two days was perfectly normal. Prior to that, he had been this angry, bitter man. And, I mean, he did everything to destroy the family just by his attitude and his frustration with his what he was going through. And so when she went to the Lord and, and asked for his help, he came out of it. He went back. You know, it was, she said then for about the next six months, he would go, come back, and then he would regress. But it was a sign to her that God was at work. And, I mean, he's perfectly normal now and has been for several years. But there were t- several things that that spoke to me was he, he loved the Lord. And so I think the Lord just trusted him that whatever circumstance, he would be fine. Mm-hmm. And, but for her, because you're, you're one flesh, you're in this mm-hmm. marriage, and she stood by him. God just really revealed himself and how much he loved her and, and brought him back. And they lost everything. They absolutely lost everything. But God is restored, and he's restored, and he's restored. And then finally they just decided they didn't want all of that anymore. So now they live in Divide. Uh, and there's a little bit more to the story. When he was kind of coming back, he started listening to Andrew Womack healing tapes. Mm-hmm. And then they came here and went to Andrew Womack for, for a year because he got a settlement that they were able to afford to go to college. But anyway, uh, now they live in a little, a small house on two acres outside of Divide, really close to where you're living, just past the wolf thing. Mm-hmm. So oh, wow. anyway, it was just, it was wonderful to see them. It was wonderful to see how God has led them, and they're just right. super happy. So there's, a, there's evidence that love was anchored in there and not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Any other thoughts or stuff like that? I, I just really ask that you take some time, however you spend time in Scripture, and meditate on. Meditate on those individual things and see if you can't recognize them in your, in your life, either happening through you or happening to you. See if you can. I think it'll expand our consciousness. You know, we're, we're admonished to, in all our ways, acknowledge Him, and He will guide our steps. Well, recognizing a glint of one of those things is a way to acknowledge God's presence in there. And so are your testimonies. The testimonies tonight were just fantastic. So thanks for your patience. I appreciate it. I think this is just super duper important, and I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad we're going to keep looking at it. 